Hello, I'm Ann Faison, and this is Are We There Yet? Understanding Adolescent Grief. My guest today is Peter Rukovina. Peter and I met in Transforming Family, a support group for families of transgender, non-binary, and gender expansive youth. But I don't know that much about Peter other than his partner died and he is a parent. So I wanted to invite Peter on the show because I'm always curious to talk to parents who are raising kids through a grief process, but also because his kids lost their mother. And I just haven't had the opportunity to interview very many men who lost their wives yet on the show. So welcome, Peter. And I'm so glad you accepted my invitation. Uh, you've gifted me with with more than one child. I only have one at present, but... <laughs> um... Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know. I actually have two, but we'll get into that later. Yeah. So that was my first question is if you can just share a bit about your family structure and how it has changed. Sure. I met my late partner, Catherine, in 1990. We were living in central Canada at the time. In 1993, we took a great leap and moved to a small island off the east coast of of Canada called Prince Edward Island. Mm. And I have lived here ever since. Catherine lived here until her death in 2020. Uh, In 2000, after having been together for almost a decade and never really having talked about having kids, we kind of spontaneously decided to have a child. And Catherine got pregnant shortly thereafter. And Olivia was born uh, fall of 2000. Hmm. And so was 19 going on 20 when her mother died. And her mother was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer when Olivia was just about to turn 14. So Mm. the last six years of of Catherine's life dovetailed with Olivia's challenging teenage years. And then since that time, almost four years past the time uh, Catherine having died, I have a new partner I've been together with almost for two years. Uh, Lisa and Lisa brings with her uh, a daughter. And so hence my by having two daughters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Olivia herself was designated male at birth, but transitioned to being identified as a woman when she was 20, going on 21. So in the in the spring of 2021. Yeah, so there have been all manner of tectonic shifts in my life, especially in the last decade. Yeah, wow. And I'm so um, surprised to hear you live on Prince Edward Island. I had no idea. That seems like a cool place to live. <laughs> it is. It has its its significant benefits and its significant challenges, given that it's far away from almost everywhere. So Wow, I can imagine. So yeah, let's go back in time a little bit. Do you remember like what your thoughts were about grief and what it might mean for Olivia before before you were in it? And then like maybe when you first realized that your partner might die? Hmm. Yeah, Catherine's uh, transition from being a seemingly healthy woman in her early 50s to being diagnosed with an incurable illness happened in the space of about a month. And mm-hmm. so that was a big transition to go through in, in one fell swoop. Olivia was in intermediate school at the time, and that was a challenging thing for her. So being parents with Catherine to Olivia during that time uh, was just naturally challenging, let, ago, let alone an incurable cancer diagnosis. Yeah. I think we, because it was such a definitive thing, uh, you know, Catherine, when she was living with cancer, came to realize that there is a 
community of people who have curable breast cancer and there's a community of people who have incurable breast cancer and and although they seem kind of like a monolith to the uninitiated one group has hope and the other group doesn't or perhaps it's a different kind of hope but mm -hmm. i think as a result of that the grieving in a sense for all of us started you know that month in 2014 and you know we lived through a living grief together for six years until Catherine died and then it evolved into something else entirely mm. um but i think i think going into it you know i i'd had uh others in my life who had died they had died in kind of the natural order of things so to speak and so i had been sad and i thought that having someone closer to me would simply mean I'd be more sad. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, you know, I, I had no idea the, the, the complexity of, of what grief is and that sadness is the least of it in, in some yeah. ways. <laughs> yeah, for, for, for all concerned. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So were you concerned, was one of your early concerns about it, about like, how are we going to parent Olivia through this and how is Olivia going to respond to it? I mean, what were your sort of ideas about? I'm just curious because I think so many people think if they haven't thought much about it, which it doesn't sound like you would have had reason to, um, oh, well, kids will just grieve the way I grieve or like, what were your thoughts about it? Well, I mean, Catherine, certainly that was her first thought. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Olivia is autistic and the way that I always conceived of Olivia's relationship with her mother, which was very close, is that Olivia, in a way, outsourced a part of her executive functioning to her mother. So they had a very symbiotic relationship. And certainly, mm -hmm. I've always been very close to Olivia, but in a different way, in a different order of magnitude. Mm -hmm. And so Catherine's first thought uh, was, we were never religious people in, in any way and did not become religious people. But Catherine's first kind of concrete non-clinical action was to go to talk to the uh, deacon at the Anglican church right across the street from us to see if her wake or her celebration of life, you know, which at that point was at some ill-defined time in the hopefully distant future, mm. uh, if it could be held in the parish hall. And the reason she did that is because the parish hall, like I can walk out my door and I can walk into the parish hall across the street. And mm. she was just concerned that Olivia in whatever manifestation of grief she would be having when Catherine died would be close to home and could mm. escape from whatever formality was happening back to the safety at home. And as it happened six years later, that's exactly what happened. So Catherine mm. was prescient in, in that regard. Um, wow. But, you know, otherwise I don't, you know, it's, I don't think we had much time to think about grief. And to be honest, um, you know, it's something that I think we actively probably tried to ignore under mm -hmm. the umbrella of if you talk about death, death will come faster, which of mm -hmm. course is a fallacy, but it's a, it's a predominant fallacy. <laughs> and so, um, you know, Catherine was diagnosed with an incurable but treatable cancer which meant that she could live for six months or six years or 15 years. Mm. And so, you know, I think the, the dagger, so to speak, hanging over our head of her ill-defined schedule for dying 
resulted in a kind of a, a paralysis. And I think that paralysis was also a kind of grief or a flavor of grief or an aspect of our grief, as was, you know, raising an autistic child brings with it a, a constant hypervigilance because they're emotionally dis dysregulated a lot of the time. And so seemingly insignificant to a neurotypical person events can catapult Olivia into a meltdown and that can happen at any time. And so in a sense, that was like a dagger and has always been like a dagger uh, hanging over our family system's head. Mm. And so really Catherine's you know, indefinite schedule for dying <laughs> added to that sense of hypervigilance. I, I don't know, we didn't label it at the time, but that kind of that, that everything being turned upside down, everything being turned up to 12 on the volume scale that officially only goes to 10, you know, that kind of put our family into what amounted to, I think, in some ways, a kind of a six year unending panic. Um, mm. You know, I, I think I call that grief. Um, Funnily, people like to use this label pre-grief, like you're pre-grieving when somebody is um, diagnosed with a terminal illness. But I don't even know about that term because it seems sort of silly. I think you're right. I think it is sort of just part of grief. Grief is just this kind of amorphous umbrella, isn't it, that a lot of things uh, are a part of? Well, essentially, when, you know, when Catherine was diagnosed... Our life as we knew it stopped. Yeah. And so we were all grieving that. Catherine was grieving that. Catherine was grieving the loss of her, you know, theoretically infinite future. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I think Catherine and I were grieving the nature of our relationship as it had been. And, uh, you know, I think Catherine was, was grieving the years of Olivia's life that she wasn't going to be a, a physical part of. Yeah. And, and Olivia, I think, you know, Olivia doesn't communicate verbally with a lot of fluency. She's, she's quite fluent when texting or writing, but I can't claim deep insight into her grieving process. I know what I've observed. I see symptoms of things that I might tie to grief, but I mean, they might also tie to not having had breakfast that morning. So mm. I, I don't know. I've never... I've never raised a neurotypical child through the death of their mother. So I don't really have a baseline to which to compare, but I do know that there are certainly that I, I do know that the loss of her mother has deeply affected her. And I know that worrying about how grief manifests itself in a neurotypical person is something that Catherine worried deeply about. And that I worried and worry deeply about, because I think I have a sense that, it comes in waves, you know, in other areas of life, I see things happening to Olivia and I don't see the kind of emotional manifestation of that for years. And so I don't know what comes next. Mm, yeah. Gosh, this is so interesting. I mean, I really didn't anticipate our conversation being about, um, neurodivergent person might grieve, especially at this age, especially somebody who is transitioning as well as, I mean, I know what, how hard it is for, um, to watch a child transition. And I know how hard it is to watch somebody who's on the spectrum transition, adding that layer of grief adds just a whole nother layer of complexity and unknown. So this is really interesting to me to talk about, um, what do you see in Olivia around the actual death? Like, I don't know if she died at home or in hospital, but was the actual 
passing of your wife, you know, how did you sort of deal with that? And how did Olivia deal with that? Um, You know, Catherine was able to live at home uh, until 20 days before she died. And Mm -hmm. Uh, certainly she was able to live at home with a lot of adaptations. So, you know, she had to move down to the first floor when she could no longer climb stairs Um, Mm -hmm. and her ability to, you know, kind of participate in the life of the household was often compromised, especially for the last couple of years. And so, you know, a lot of the practical, almost all of the practical duties of, of parenting fell on my shoulders. And, you know, I think Olivia noticed that difference uh, and then, you know, just the the energy that her mother had to be able, well, had to devote to her the the care and attention when Catherine was necessarily, you know, she was in an incredible pain. She was affected by pain medication. Uh, she was worried. Uh, and so, you know, that's not a great recipe for high quality parenting. She did her best. But I think Olivia felt the changing nature of their relationship and i think she felt the changing nature of my relationship with her as as more things uh both practical and kind of in in terms of emotional support uh fell on my shoulders Mm. we had spent six years as a family system where really the only person that anyone ever paid attention to was catherine because the approach was clinical the job of the professionals in her life were to extend her life to mitigate her pain and so we were just bit players on the home support team. And so often, you know, when I would go to appointments with her at the cancer treatment center, I didn't have a name or nobody said hello to me. And so when we went Mm -hmm. to the palliative care home, all of a sudden uh, there was a social worker there, the whole cradle of supports there were designed to support not only Catherine, but, but her family. And so we were welcome there 24 seven, we were fed uh, mm. a place to watch television. We, you know, it was, it was, uh, in, in terms of places that one might choose to die, uh, a pretty fantastic place to die. And, um, uh, you know, that, that extended to Olivia. So Olivia was able to spend time with her mom there. Uh, she was able to spend time without her mom there, like, you know, in the, in the family room, as it became clearer and clearer that, you know, Catherine's time was limited. Olivia was able to spend more time there. My family had come from from Points West to uh, support Olivia primarily because I was supporting Catherine. And so Olivia was able to go home at night, but come back during the day. On the day before Catherine died, Olivia was able to spend the entire day there. And then, you know, it was, this is, this is something that Olivia still talks about. She, she had not been there at four or five o'clock in the evening. And it seemed like maybe Catherine was about to die. And so we, we brought her there and then Catherine didn't die. And, you know, if you know anything about neurotypical people, transition is a, is a challenge, especially for Olivia. Um, Mm. Consistency is very important. And if you say something is going to happen and then it doesn't happen, right. You know, whether that, uh, school's canceled today. Oh, no, school's not canceled today. Right. That can precipitate a meltdown that goes on for hours. Well, saying, oh, your mom's going to die. You better rush to her bedside. Oh, guess what? She didn't die. Mm. That, was, that was a big thing for her to handle and therefore for everyone else to support her through. And then the next night, everyone had gone home for the evening. Uh, I was at Catherine's bedside. She appeared to wake up and then she was gone. 
And, mm. you know, that was, I spent some time with her. I called my brother. My brother brought Olivia uh, to Catherine's room and Olivia was able to give her a hug. Mm. You know, I think that constant, you know, for six years we'd been worrying about, well, what, what was this going to be like for Olivia? Was she going to have the meltdown to end all meltdowns? Was she going to mm. hurt herself or someone else? Was she going to go inward and be unreachable to us? We had no idea. And seemingly no one with any experience, uh, at least locally. And so we were winging it. As it happened, Olivia, you know, she kept it together. I had no idea really about her internal life through that period. But in terms of fears about her, you know, becoming extremely emotionally dysregulated, they didn't end up happening. Mm -hmm. And in the days and weeks to come, you know, we had a, a significant celebration of her life. She died on the 16th, I think it was the 22nd. We had a celebration of her life in, it ended up being in the church beside the parish hall. And again, you know, we were worried about, well, what is this going to be like for Olivia? And of course, all of these wonderings, all of this hypervigilance, it's the same me who's also grieving at the same time. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not thinking straight. I don't know how to feel mm. or, but I'm trying to also simultaneously be afraid of, care for, support Olivia with tremendous help in retrospect from, from my family. Mm. But Olivia came and sat beside me in a church pew and I spoke, um, got up and read a poem that she had written. She sat down. Mm. You know, the kind of the celebration of life was this wonderful celebration of her mother's life. And we adjourned to the parish hall and we had something to eat. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> a lot of this is a black hole for me. But, uh, you know, Olivia didn't break down. Now, when I say that, I maybe she did. Mm. And maybe she broke down in a way that I didn't recognize. Maybe she is breaking down. Maybe what breaking down looks like in her isn't what it looks like in me. Mm. Uh, all of those things I think are true, but she was safe, I guess. And that's at least physically safe. And that was an important thing at that time. Mm. That's a remarkable story. I mean, all of it is so interesting to me. It's, it's hard being the parent of um, an autistic person. I imagine uh, when you really can't see their emotion when it's not you know, being expressed. Um, I think it's hard with kids in general because they're often inarticulate about their feelings or they're um, suppressing their feelings because they're overwhelming to them. And it sounds like that's happening with Olivia, but with the, the added layer of, you, you know, you're already sort of missing that level of communication that most of us take for granted. Yeah. And I think there, you know, there was another aspect of this that I only came to learn in the year or two that followed mm. and it was a slow process but as olivia you know as we moved farther from catherine's death and of course two months after catherine died covid hit and we all went inside for many months yeah. and so you know that was another interesting aspect challenging aspect and an aspect with some opportunities you know olivia and i were you know basically locked in a house with one another from march to june but that gave us a lot of time to communicate and gave me more time to observe her. And I began to notice, for example, that she was uh, experimenting with different pronouns on her Facebook profile. And uh, occasionally she would kind of 
tentatively change the name of her Facebook profile to Olivia from her dead name. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was, I was open-minded about this and curious about this, but just at that point, at least was just a passive observer. And then gradually she revealed to me that she felt like she had, I don't, I don't know if she would describe it as come out to her mother, but as early as when she was 15 or 16 years old, I think she had made what she thought were some pretty concrete, you know, I want to see what it's like to live as a woman statements to her mother mm. and her mother for whatever reason. And of course, from beyond the grave, I don't know what these reasons are. And I don't know the, the truth of it from her perspective, but Olivia's perception is that her mother shut those down mm. and didn't allow that was, you know, disapproved of it. And I think whatever the truth of, of that from Catherine's perspective, the truth of it from Olivia's perspective was that she sublimated those feelings, didn't want to, you know, disturb her mother, go against her mother's wishes, however you might describe it. Mm. And so it was only until her mother had died that she felt comfortable in starting to express those feelings again to me. Mm. Um, and I had, it, I don't know how I was not part of this when she was 15 or 16, right. but it, it was a dynamic between the, the two of them. And so in a, in a way, Catherine's death gifted Olivia the opportunity to, you know, live her true gender and to express that and to feel confident in that mm. with, you know, the chaser that, you know, her, her remaining, one of her remaining memories of her mother is that her mother didn't approve of who she was. Mm. I spent 28 years living with her mother and I knew her as a progressive, open-minded feminist. And I, I know that that was not the case, but I can't, I can't speak for her and I, nothing I will say to Olivia will convince her otherwise. So wow. um, that, the, you know, the gender piece on top of and intersecting with autism, intersecting with grief when you say, you know, what what was Catherine's illness and then death like for Olivia, uh, for any specific thing or challenge or opportunity that happened over that period, I can't say, you know, I don't know what the antecedents are. I don't know what's grief, what's gender, what's autism. And, and in fact, I don't think that's not the way our souls and minds work, really. So mm -hmm. I think it's all of those things together. It's a yeah. unique package that that is Olivia in the same way that it's a unique package that is me or you so yeah yeah so how um how's Olivia doing these days it sounds like she's living in her own space and all of that can you talk a little bit about how she's been doing since um her mom's death yeah I mean she that special nature of their relationship and that need for in her for a mother figure has has remains undimmed and so mm -hmm. you know in the in the weeks and months and years after Catherine's death as i started to consider what would come next for me and what was the right timing to begin dating and uh how would that work with olivia i in retrospect gave very little thought to olivia being part of any romantic future for me it's, I mean, it's remarkable to me how little, it's almost like I edit her out of the picture. Mm. I think because I considered, considered that to be a matter between me and whoever I might find. And I think if I was being honest, you know, it's a hard, 
thing to ask someone with whom you want to become involved to also become involved inevitably with a daughter who brings with her a lot of good things, but a, a lot of very challenging things in yeah. terms of you know being being in partnership, being part of her daily life. And yeah. so in 2021, Olivia announced to me that it was okay for her to start dating and me to start dating. <laughs> I don't know why she chose the end of March of 2021. So a year and a bit after Catherine died. And then in December, I, I had dates on and off over with, with a variety of women over the course of 2021, introduced Olivia to one or two women. In late 2021, uh, I met Lisa, who I remain uh, partnered with to this day. And Olivia went from a kind of a blase, oh yeah, you've dated other women, like I'm not going to pay any attention to Lisa, to within the space of two weeks, referring to Lisa as her stepmother, kind of wholesale adoption of this idea that, okay, now this is my family. And that's a lot to ask a new partner to take on. It's a lot to ask me to take on. Um, and it was a lot for Olivia to conceive of, well, why, why isn't this family working as a family is supposed to work? You know, why is Lisa only here on the weekends? Why aren't we doing everything together? Mm. And so just, you know, kind of reconceiving of the tentative promise, perhaps, of having a, a mother-daughter relationship again in some way. And, you know, simultaneous to that and perhaps caused by that or affected by that, Olivia started over the course of 2022 to have a lot of emotional regulation issues that were really heightened and amplified in a way that I hadn't seen for five or six years. And to the point where it was just, you know, it wasn't going to be tenable for her to live under the same roof as originally me and then later Lisa and her daughter. And so kind of, of necessity, we, we grasped at finding a new housing model for her. Institutional housing was, even if it had been preferred, was not an option. There was no availability. And Olivia kind of in some ways is too high needs and in other ways isn't high needs enough. And so mm. essentially what we ended up doing is inventing a, a housing model for her. We rented an apartment a couple of doors up the street. We, after a very careful process, identified two people about her age who were college students to move in with her as what we called supportive roommates. And she has lived there since the 1st of March. And we're... I'm always reevaluating that model and how it's working. And one of the roommates has since left and Olivia has decided that she doesn't want to participate in the day program for autistic adults that she'd been participating in since 2019. And so the shape of her days is a challenge both for us and for her. So she, you know, and she continues to try to define a relationship with, with Lisa. Lisa continues to try to conceive of what, you know, what's the right note for her to strike with Olivia and the day-to-day -day kind of just daily living support for Olivia consumes a lot of our time. And I think increasingly I realize that I'm still, well, I would say I'm not back to normal. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the, the default way of saying it, but I think there is no, like normal is a different normal now. And, you know, in addition to I, I talked about how my original conception of, of grief of, you know, someone I was very close to would just be like regular sadness, but amplified. Right. And it turns out that that is true, but it's also like everything is different. I'm a different person. 
everything that I at once thought was going to be true is no longer true. And so, you know, it's like the vision of the future I imagine, both positive and negative, is erased suddenly. You know, it's like having the rug pulled out from underneath you. But there are also, and this has been something I've only really been able to talk about or even admit to myself, there are also tremendous opportunities. Like I'm a better more complete, more vulnerable, more open, more flexible person. I'm able to love more deeply. I'm able to respect the things that I have, respect the situation that I find myself in so much more, perhaps because I know of fragility. Mm. That's a hard thing to say because I'm saying basically someone I love died and I benefited from <laughs> it. And what a horrible to say that out loud but mm. it's also it's i think it's worse to not say it out loud and to pretend it doesn't exist and trying to sublimate those feelings so yeah and you know and i think that's that's a challenge for both olivia and i is you know for her to see me repartnered happy moving forward and for her to feel by times stuck and not sure what comes next for her and without the kind of agency she sees her peers as having you know we we were together we were united in our grief for a time at least episodically mm. and she's growing older and i'm growing older and and she's living apart from me and so yeah it's i, th I think we're still changed and i think we will always be changed and i think grief plays a role in almost everything we do the the kind of the reaction to the to the trauma that is baked into everything mm -hmm. and you know to try and reform our relationship now that we have both changed so significantly there is a kind of a rebirth to that and so one of the things that i'm trying to do in finding a, a stable and more independent housing situation for her is to stop being her caregiver, to stop picking out her clothes and making all her meals and taking her to all her doctor's appointments, and to, again, find a way to be her father in a way that I can uniquely be because I'm her father. Mm. So. I mean, it sounds in a way, what I'm getting from this conversation is there doesn't sound like a real need to talk about this is what i'm normally asking parents is like how did you talk to your kids about their grief how did you acknowledge it how did you it sounds like in your family in a way the grief is like it's just there there's so many other things going on you're talking about so many other kind of uh more pressing issues that it doesn't even sound like it needs to be talked about i don't know what would you say about that I think one of the gifts of, you know, Olivia's intersectionality as a, as a trans autistic woman, trans autistic grieving woman, mm. is that we don't talk about grief as a, like a, an object, you know, you, you use the phrase like talk about your grief. Well, I mean, talking about grief is really talking about who you are mm. and how you're feeling and how you're confronting the world and how the world is confronting you. And so it's not a, it's not a separate thing. It's not like a new car you bought that you can talk about your new car. Mm -hmm. um, it's really a description of a, of a change that you are going through. And I think, yeah, our family has gone through more changes. And so really in a sense, you know, it, I think it's not a stretch to say that Olivia growing up as a, of a autistic trans woman, she's used to being atypical. And so that doesn't mean it's easy to lose her mother but 
she's used to having atypical emotions. She's used to being out of phase with people around her. Right. And so right. and used um, to and used to people seeing her as different. I think that is a big right. struggle for kids who are grieving is like suddenly they're different. Suddenly they're standing out. Suddenly they're the kid without a parent. And That's it right. sounds like Olivia already was different, already stood out. So that isn't like a big shift for her. Yeah. And I mean, that, again, that's a huge assumption on my part to make, mm. um, because, you know, clearly having lost her mom, like that is, that is a significant event for her. And it does, it has affected the way people have interacted with her. And I'm sure that she notices that in some ways, but I think against a background of a lot of other things going on, perhaps, perhaps it's not as significant, I guess, is, is as far as I can go uh, definitively. Yeah. yeah. So you, you mentioned this, but I'd love to just ask you a little more about how did you feel, I mean, or did you find the time to sort of manage your own grief while dealing with all the other challenges you were facing? Well, I had, one of the things I left out of my, you know, household family system story is that three months to the day before Catherine died, my father died and he, he died relatively unexpectedly. I mean, he had not been well for some time, but nobody expected him to die. And he died essentially in the space of, you know, he went into hospital and, and had died two weeks later. Mm. And Catherine was in the hospital at the, at the same time, you know, three provinces over at home with us. And so I'm, I'm realizing that I didn't have any time to process the, the death of my father. And I'm kind of just getting around to that now because I, my mind and soul and body were completely consumed with caring for Catherine and then caring for Olivia and managing everything that came after that. And so, yeah, I think the truth of my, you know, once Catherine died and kind of what came next for me is that, and I don't, I have no idea whether this is common or, or unique to me. I, I suspect there's some commonality to it. And that's, I just assumed that I could, that the regular rules didn't apply to me and that I would just move on and, power through the grief. And if I just kind of kept my head down and, and, uh, you know, tromped through the difficult forest, I'd get to the other side and then everything would be okay. And that, that lasted me well from through February, March, April, May. And then I realized, oh no, I can't do that. And it was only at that point that I reached out to a therapist. I started to talk to people. I started to reconceive of, you know, this notion that I could power through this and really a, a lot of very important things there in terms of your question about, you know, was I able to grieve started only then. Mm. Uh, and I'm so thankful that whatever series of circumstances led to me being able to do that were there because it's conceivable that I could have just kept everything inside and it would still be there. And I would not like to live like that. So. Mm. And how I, I'm really curious when you said you had this idea, like, well, the regular rules don't apply to me. Like, what made you think that? Uh, irrationality. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, it's possible that I just didn't feel like I had time for that. Mm, um, mm. Or that, yeah, I think it's magical thinking, I guess. Yeah. So there was no, there was no uh, basis in the evidence that I would be able to do this whatsoever. And when I go back and and look at, you know, just where my head and heart were during that time. Like clearly I, I was significantly compromised and affected by this and wasn't thinking straight. And so perhaps one of the ways in which I was not thinking straight was to think that I was thinking straight. Right. 
I love that. Yeah, it's so funny. Episode that just came out um, was with an 18-year-old. Well, now she's 19, but she was 18 when I interviewed her. And she said she just didn't believe grief was a real thing, you know? Right. So it's this sort yeah. of the same idea, like, oh, that's not real. Like, that's not going to happen to me, you know? That happens to other people. Yeah. Well, I, I tell this story of how when Olivia was 17 and just starting high school, she had significant emotional regulation challenges. Like I was taking her to high school every day and she was just, she was having a meltdown every day. And I was, you know, overwrought by this. And, and I remember calling the psychologist who had originally diagnosed her from five years earlier uh, as being autistic and saying, you know, I need help. Like Olivia's dysregulated almost all the time. What can I do? And she said, oh, have you tried reaching out to the mental health system? And my first reaction was, oh, no, this isn't a mental health issue. This is, and then I realized, oh, yeah, right. This is a mental health issue. Like <laughs> autism is involved and all sorts of other things involved. But fundamentally, this is about mental well-being. Mm. And I think perhaps my misunderstanding of grief as just being like absolute sadness distracted me from the notion that, uh, you know, all systems are affected by by grief. And so the ability to plan for the future, one's conception of the past, what to have for dinner tonight, all of those things, which have in many ways, nothing to do with sadness. Like, I don't think I was depressed during that period mm. at all. I think my head was 15 degrees out of phase with what it was used to. And that took a lot of time to get used to. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when I think about this entire phase of my life that is that has been defined in many ways by grief, I think, interestingly, the two things that have been most therapeutic to me that have, they haven't cured me of grief, but they have allowed me to be open to it in a new way, perhaps is the best way of saying it, is I decided that I needed to go and learn how to ride horses in 2020. Against all logic or history, I'd never been, I never touched a horse before. But I had had, I think it had occurred to me that perhaps Olivia might benefit from equine therapy. But if I was going to ask her to do that, I needed to be comfortable with horses. And that, just the unlikeliness I've got on one level was, was a big step for me to take. And then just having relationships with horses turns out to actually be very therapeutic. Mm. And that was a big helpful leap for me. And then about a year after that, I decided to go to improv classes. And again, I'm not a theatrical person. This was completely out of character for me. I like playing charades previously, but that was about as far as I went. But uh, I realized I kind of had this, what's the worst thing that could happen superpower that I had yet to take out for a ride. And so, you know, when the person that you love dies in the same room as you, that's like a pretty horrible thing on the scale of things to witness and be an intimate part of. So on, on that scale, the idea that I'd be embarrassed uh, or made make a fool of myself on an improv stage was minor league mm. and yet so helpful to me. And, I, you know, it's a practice that I have kept up for the last two years and cannot imagine being as emotionally healthy as I am now without that practice. So mm. and was that was that grief counseling? Mm. Well, yeah. no, but yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. definitely. <laughs> and, and laughter is such an important therapy, I think. And, you know, so many people 
crack jokes at funerals or or through the the death process there's people with you know a lot of people a lot of families you know you really use humor to get through those kinds of periods and i think i think laughter is just as powerful as crying yeah. as far as processing emotion yeah you know i i was thinking just the other day of how one of my first thoughts when Catherine was first diagnosed was how are we ever going to have arguments as a couple again because mm. how could i seek to prevail in an argument you know on the opposite side of the table from Catherine, who was dying of incurable cancer and you know that's just one small slice of all the ways in which our relationship changed but it's also one small slice of of how my relationship with the world changed so you know thinking about laughter and you know, when when someone dies how soon do, is it socially acceptable to wait until one can feel happy in any way and the pressure to not feel happy is tremendous i realized and you know in terms of dating and mm -hmm. and exploring that part of my life uh, i felt and most of this i think was self-imposed i didn't have people telling me what was appropriate what was inappropriate in part because covid meant that i wasn't really talking to anyone but i felt this tremendous i i, I imposed upon myself this tremendous weight of you know i had some obligation for some arbitrary amount of period to maintain the role of the widower and and to hold catherine's memory high and to be a particular way and releasing myself of that obligation which was you know ultimately arbitrary and self-imposed that that was a great gift to myself as well mm. i love that yeah well as the child of somebody who remarried after their mother died i can say i definitely don't think there's a time when it's better or worse to do that or that waiting really changes it but it is a big challenge for the kids to kind of accept somebody else or, and I, I totally feel for Olivia's like wanting to latch on to the stepmother and be like, okay, you're my mom now. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I really felt that as a young person, I was only 15, um, when my dad or 16, when my dad remarried and, um, yeah, it's confusing for kids, but, and it's a really complicated relationship, the step parent to stepchild relationship. And it just takes a lot of time and a lot of understanding and a lot of compassion, um, on both sides, on all sides to navigate that. But yeah. And I think that is, that is true clearly, whether you're neurotypical or neuroatypical. Sure. And I think, you know, that's another learning that I've gone through is that how do autistic kids process the the death of a parent well in many ways like any kid does which is to say you know there's a thousand ways under under the sun there's no typical way to grieve or to be affected by that yeah and blending families is always hard is it harder in some ways for olivia and easier in other ways yes mm -hmm. um and similarly for me and and for the other parties involved so uh, but you're right. It is. It is a. It's a challenging thing to blend families, regardless of whether grief is involved. And I think grief in, injects another layer of challenge and difficulty. And in, as I alluded to earlier, in, in some ways, there's an opportunity there. I think, which is often underrealized, which is having gone through this process, going through this process that I'm going through of grieving. It does make the flowers 
uh, smell sweeter mm. and it makes me appreciate things. And I, I know that it can go the other way. My mother's father died when she was five years old. And my mother describes him essentially going inward for a decade mm. and not establishing connections and just letting his grief uh, overtake him and cut him off from, you know, things that might've brought him great joy. Eventually he did emerge, but, mm. and I know it could have gone that way uh, for me. And I'm, I'm always aware of that. Um, mm. And so I'm thankful that it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate uh, your ability to articulate um, information and feelings and all of it um, so beautifully. So I've, I've found this conversation really, really easy to just sit and listen. <laughs> I haven't had to ask you very much because I feel like your uh, ability to talk about it is just really rich and, and beautiful. So I thank you so much for coming on and for, and for being willing to share so much about your family. Well, you're welcome. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a minute, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're really moved to say something, please find me on my Substack. It's called I'm Listening. And there is a link in the show notes. And as always, I want to thank... Josephine Wiggs for the music is from her album, We Fall. <laughs>